everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kimura, and today on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. And John Nepperson. Hey, everybody. And in this episode today, we're going to just continue on with our previous discussion on the new Ruby 3.0 features. So I wasn't part of that discussion. Do one of y'all want to give a quick recap of just some of the highlights that we had discussed? I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, sure. On the basis that most people probably moved from Ruby 2.6 to Ruby 3, we just went through all the changes and the new features that were brought in in 2.7. Yep, that's that's pretty much it. We also, I think, noted that 2.8 became Ruby 3.0, basically, uh, and there was no 2.9. So, which which has given us the greatest interview question of recent years. Are you familiar with Ruby 2.8 or 2.9? Uh, I suppose, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose if you're looking to to try and trip someone up, yep. I've started putting it on, on what do you call them, job ads. Familiarity with 2.8. That's right, 2.8, 2.9. That's funny. Yeah, I, I love it when you see job ads that require like, X number of years of experience in a given technology, and that technology is not that old yet. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, if, if you want to get uh, some more interesting people, then uh, you better make interesting adverts. It's as simple as that. So, I, I mean, n- knowing you and your your desire to make funny funny things happen, I like can completely understand it. But I will definitely say that from the other side, right, as somebody who is, you know, uh, looking for jobs, the moment that I see that kind of a thing on a job, I immediately just, I, I just turn, I just like, oh, I don't want to work here. It's full of assholes. That's what I say to myself. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, whatever. You're right. But- <laughs> You're right, though. You got it on the money straight away. I, I, okay, just full disclosure, that is what I think in my brain. And I move on immediately as soon as I see anything like that. Or if I see people being like, hey, here's a fun game test for you or whatever that I'm like, "Mm, that looks like it's just somebody like trying to pull my leg. I'm not into that. Uh, (laughs) Okay, cool. Yeah, I know we're talking about Ruby 3 in this episode, but geez, I could go on and on about my issues with hiring practices. Yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure that we brought up the contrasting thing there, especially since I happen to, to fit that. Cool. So Luke, since you were the one who originally made this document, would you like to, to take us through the journey? I know we've planned an episode. It's, 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 uh, it might not catch up, but we have planned it. So I was going to say there is no Ruby 8.2 or 2.9, but there was kind of a Ruby 2.8. If you spend a lot of time in the Ruby source control on the main branch, trying to understand the internals, you will note that there was a whole load of 2.8 pre-releases that then got bumped to Ruby 3 at the end of August 2020 when uh, Matt's decided that we were at Ruby 3. And uh, I believe his thinking on that, uh, which I agree with, uh, was that Ruby had achieved its three times performance increase over Ruby 2. So the idea was that Matt's wanted to make Ruby 3 three times faster than Ruby 2.0. And there were a whole load of um, really significant performance increases for most Ruby users uh, between 2 and 2.5. That was when you kind of saw if you're running a Rails site, you really did benefit a lot from upgrading. But I, from, and I might be speaking out of tone here, but from Matt's point of view, and from a lot of people outside the kind of Rails ecosystem, raw language performance is not best assessed with Ruby on Rails because Rails does a lot of funky things 
and raw language, kind of string copying, uh, boring stuff like that, object method performance is not best assessed by the Rails benchmarks. So they use a thing called opt caret. Are you familiar with the opt caret? I am not. No, neither was I. Neither, neither was <laughs> I. So they, they started to an opt caret and RubyCon with KON. And I hadn't really heard of these things, but these were the benchmarks they pointed to when making the Ruby 3.0 release. Opt caret is a NES emulator. So the original Nintendo system, uh, it emulates that processor and it can run Nintendo games off ROMs you can download. Whereas RubyCon is a Go bot, meaning that it plays the board game Go. So it's like a chess AI, but it's not playing chess, it's playing Go. And these are the two reference programs that a lot of people look at when assessing Ruby language performance. I would just like to point out that uh, I played Go in my chess club way back in the day, and I love Go. I'm also not as good at it. It's very, very important. But I was totally familiar with Go. Anyway. Are you are you a board gamer? I, I actually used to really love chess until I met people that loved it way more than me, and it changed how much I loved it. I still like it. I will still probably teach my kids, but but I uh, definitely uh, tournament people take it very seriously, and I was not that serious. As long as you have like a shot every time someone takes a piece, it be, can be quite a fun experience. Are you are you a board gamer, Dave? I mean, I have kids, so I do play quite a number of board games, but I wouldn't say I'm really a huge board gamer. But speaking to John's point about chess, I do enjoy chess, and the book I think that I love. The chess book that I love is like back from the way before I was born. Bobby Fisher teaches chess, I think. It's such a fun book. Right. Familiar with it. I had a Bobby Fisher, that crazy man, crazy name, crazy guy. Uh, this is this is the reason I'm asking, so I can tell my chess story. Everyone has fun chess stories. My chess story. Oh. I was working in my usual selection of dead end jobs. And I had a colleague who was also doing this uh, very unexciting work, but he was a great chess player. This was chess was his thing. He was really good at it. And I had a chess set. I brought a chess set into work and put it on my desk to make people think I was intelligent. I was not intelligent, but people see a chess set and they think you're smart. So it's purely office uh, decoration. So I had my chess set on my desk and he came up to me and he said, oh, you know, I'm really, really into chess. I will play you. Are you good? I said, oh, yeah, I'm great, obviously. He said, well, I'm really good. I've done X, Y, Z. So we started our game of chess. The thing was, of course, I cannot play chess and it bores me to tears. But what I can do is download a very good chess program. And then I typed his moves as my moves into the chess program. So he would come along and he'd kind of make a move and I'd say, oh yeah, that's good, let me think about it. And when he'd gone away, I'd just make that move against the hardest chess program I could find. And I would then play my move as the computer's move. So in fact, he wasn't playing me, he was playing the chess AI. And of course he got horribly beaten and he really quite annoyed. And I never, never had the guts to tell him that he'd never really been playing me. He'd just been playing a chess program. But if you want to, if you work with colleagues who fancy they're good at chess and you want to torment them, why not pretend to play them at chess, but just download a chess program and put them against the hardest difficulties of a setting? Man. That's hilarious. I like half hope that he's a listener. He, uh, he most certainly is. He most <laughs> certainly is. But yeah, a top tip. So yeah, uh, right. Ruby free. Ruby free. <laughs> How do you... How do you get it? How do you get Ruby free? How do you install it? I mean, it's already available, right? You can just down do it every, the way they used to do it. I can't. It's, I just it's already in the RBM listing. Yeah, uh, you can't. It's, it's the system Ruby's haven't updated. RBM, RBM. How do you say it? RBM, right? I think the ENV is for environment. I don't know. I used to all call it RBEMV, and then somebody said RBEMV one day, and I was like, oh, I think that's a better way to pronounce it, and I just picked it up and rolled. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. People are still talking to you. The So Chuck said on our last episode that he uses the Brightbox PPA 
to install Ruby on some systems in Ubuntu. The Brightbox PPA does not have Ruby free yet. So you can't get it there. As you said, you can RBM will take care of it. Dave, you were talking about Beanstalk. This is what is the Beanstalk? So Elastic Beanstalk is AWS's the whole quote my first cloud kind of thing where you can deploy your Ruby application. So it's an application service for running your environment. And they do not support Ruby 3.0 yet. As far as I know, the latest version is still just Ruby 2.7. I uh, just verified that uh, it is available as a base Ruby Docker container. So went ahead and linked to that. That's how I've been doing it with just the, the Ruby 3.0 in a Docker, and uh, then you get your Ruby. But of course, you don't then have your uh, usual operating system. Um, mm. So I think I mean I think that does uh, was it Alpine Linux? Well, you can get it in both Alpine and not. But I mean, so one of the things that I do, for example, right, is I maintain some containers or some maintain some Docker files that basically, you know, inherit from these base Ruby images and then add stuff onto them, right? So whenever I want to upgrade a version of Ruby, I just spin up or I just create base or I just, you know, create a new branch, right, in my repo that contain that inherits from this base you know now ruby 3 container adds in the same exact stuff i'm just changing one line in a file right and then basically my docker hub repo builds the new branch and so i now have a new container available it's tagged and everything that's how it works for me i've been um i've been doing rails in in docker this week so i have uh, i've been going through the evil martians guide to developing Rails using Docker. Are you familiar with this approach? I think we also had somebody from Evil Martians on not too long ago. And I think we were talking about Docker. I don't remember, but... Yeah, I like their approach. So essentially, basically what they do is they have a base container which has the Ruby application code. And then you will have whatever dependency containers that you need, whether it's Redis, PostgreSQL or whatever else. And then you also have a Webpacker one. And the Webpacker one will inherit from the base container. And then your application will inherit from the base container. And from there, things just kind of tie in together and you can just develop your Ruby. And it just, I think that in their documentation, they also had where you were just creating a volume for your local current directory up to the Docker containers app directory. So that way, any changes that you make on your local host, meaning that you're still able to use your favorite editor, then those changes will automatically be reflected within the Docker container. Mm, That sounds almost exactly like my system. Almost word for word. Actually, I just found their Docker thing, and it is relatively similar-ish. Definitely some differences. but, But yeah, for the most part, yep. I would advocate for that too. I found it very helpful getting going. And it, it's not just a basic setup guide. It also says if you mount this volume like this, then it'd be quick on Mac, you know. So I, I found it hugely helpful getting going. And if you want to, if you are doing your dev that way and you want to try out Ruby Free, all you have to do is change the line at the top of the Docker file to Ruby Free and you've got Ruby Free. Sweet. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'll actually link to that since we just talked about it and I happened to look it up anyway. All right, that's how you get it. So as far as Raptors, I think that's been one of the things that I've heard the most about. What, that I've looked, at, what, is, a, what is a Raptor? So if I understand it correctly, the Raptors is a new way of handling concurrency within Ruby 3. Sounds like Raptor. And I haven't done much with it. I haven't really had a need but i do remember that someone had made a pseudo sidekick mvp with raptors and that it was a it was a pretty cool project i'll see if i can find a link to that awesome awesome i called them r raptors no i don't really (laughs) no i don't no, I mean, this is an interesting. So this is a kind of, I don't think a Raptor is an official computer science thing. This is just a kind of word they've come up with. And I think they may have been in, were they in 2.7? I think they were. 
So I was under the impression that that Ractor was just the the fancy name. For, it, it's our actor, right? Like just like you said, right? Yeah. It's the actor thing, which is a computer science thing, but it's R oh. for Ruby. What is an actor then? Okay, so actor's a thing. So I'm actually looking up some stuff because I'm not super clear on the distinction between the things. But it does come, like there's a couple languages, for example, Erlang and Scala both have actors natively. The mm. basic the basic thing is that actors can actually talk to each other versus threads, which mm-hmm. can't. I'm trying to see if there's anything like more important that distinguishes them. So one thing to note is that in Ruby, actors are using fibers instead of threads. So, which is also a new thing that we're planning to talk about. So I think maybe this all might get mixed together here. Yeah. Okay. So it looks like that does seem to be the main problem with actors is actors are, are about communicating to each other. Okay. I thought it might be like a reactor or something, but it's really just Ruby actors. That's my understanding. I'm apparently not a lot of people right now seem to be uh, talking a lot about it. So one of the things I found was a blog post by him here. We're going to butcher the name, Lorenzo Barasti, where he talks about the Ruby actors. And as you say, the, the, the Raptors talk to each other, unlike the Freds, which are kind of doing their own thing. But they do so in a non-blocking way. So you've got this, you've got all your kind of async stuff going on. It seems to be primarily to do with handling queues. So if you've got a big queue of stuff, you spin up loads of Raptors instead of spinning up loads of Freds. And that has its advantages. Okay, so I just found some conflicting information, too, that I wasn't expecting to find. So it kind of looks like Raptors might be completely different. Anyway, all right, we should probably do Raptors separately because I feel like I have multiple pieces of information here that I need to sort through. Like, what I brought beforehand was not mm-hmm. what I just looked up on Google, which is not what Noah Gibbs is talking about. And I feel, you know, like we can kind of probably trust Noah Gibbs. I think we can. Yeah, so I feel like that's probably somewhat useful. So, and I think the important question is: Should I even care about Raptors from a Ruby about fibers? Yeah, from a Ruby on Rails perspective, if I'm developing an application that you know, for the most part, all most Rails applications are very similar. You know, it's Mm -hmm. very RESTful, cruddy style built. You don't have too many things going on. You might have some service objects and all of that stuff. So do I really even need to worry about Raptors, you know, or mm. threat safety or anything like that? Or can I just kind of go in and program like I norm- normally am and any kind of library or Ruby itself or Puma would just inherently take care of it and I don't even have to worry about it. Yeah, I think it's going to be hidden. So, all right. So I've been able to read far enough into this to to realize that one, all right, my information isn't conflicting, but Ruby has Ruby has sort of a special implementation of actors is what it sounds like. So, all right, so we're all familiar with the fact that in in standard Ruby, right? We have we have our our lock, right? Our gill or whatever, right? So, you technically really can only it, basically it makes Ruby like single threaded really, right? We can pretend that we have threads, but but we're not. So, Yep. The the Raptor implementation kind of gives us more than one gill. Like for each Raptor we have, we have a new lock, which is that's interesting. I don't completely under know what the implement implications of that are. Like, does that does that mean that you know we're gonna use a ton more memory, for example? Right? Like that would be like the thing that pops into my head is like being the most obvious like problem with having multiple uh interpreter locks, but it does look like there's there's a few things. One, each Raptor kind of like knows about the existence of the other ones. So they're able to like know whose memory is whose, if that makes sense. This kind of sounds a little bit like Passenger, right? Like Passenger uses a lot of like shared memory in between its things. And then it like, yep. it, but each Passenger like worker, or what, eh, worker's the wrong word or whatever. But yeah, no worker. Each Passenger worker also kind of has a chunk of memory that it's that is its own, right? And they they know about that. This kind of sounds a lot like that, where they sort of have some shared memory, and then maybe 
are able to like maybe when they write to memory or sort of like then they're writing to their own space kind of thing kind of like overwriting yeah anyway so there's it, it kind of sounds like yes so raptors are an implementation of actors that's not wrong but ruby's doing it ruby's using it uniquely because we have the we have the the lock or whatever that other languages just don't so this is this moves us nicely onto fiber schedulers which is very much what you were talking about john the good old global interpreter lock and the source of many allegations of ruby being slow is the global interpreter lock the fiber scheduler is in ruby free and this is very much intended to improve ruby's performance on multiple cores without a major major overhaul to the global interpreted lock um, my understanding is as soon as you start messing with the gill which i think is what jay ruby does and a few others then all kinds of interesting things happen and you get maybe libraries did one thing before and now they do another thing now so you get this kind of a uh, lot of breakage and the fiber scheduler gives a way to get at massive multi-core performance that kind of you've got eight cores you've got eight times the throughput you've got 16 cores you've got 16 times the throughput without a major language overhaul i found a talk by samuel williams called scalable concurrency for ruby free which was at ruby kaigi 2020 which i highly recommend watching crack and talk and he goes he goes into that and what you can and can't do with these these uh the fiber the fiber scheduler yeah fibers seem the most exciting thing to me maybe it's just because i understand them better but basically i think it kind for me at least it kind of fits the ruby thing which is like hey let's all be good citizens right hey i'm not doing anything right now I don't really need the CPU here. Let, let's let this other Ruby thread take up. I don't know. I just feel like it fits the Ruby paradigm of being nice and good citizens kind of deal, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, before, right? Like Ruby's always had this problem with like a thread not really, you know, giving up its time in the CPU. And, and there's nothing you could do about that except forcibly remove it, which causes problems, right? So now we can say, hey, you know what? I'm I'm IO blocked right now. Um, I don't need the time. Schedule me in a little bit, right? So that's that seems really awesome to kind of get all that time back. And yeah, and get Ruby there is a, a a flag a flagship thing to do with the fiber schedulers, which is the Falcon web server, a web server straight from from a a long long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away, the Falcon web server, what a great name. I, I thought Puma was good, but Falcon knocks it out of the park in terms of the name of a web server. What are you running <laughs> on your service, John? Well, you know, yeah, I'm, uh, it might not look like not look like a lot, but it's got it where it counts. The, the, are you running a Falcon? So I looked at it. I'm not running Falcon because it does not, like, it, it relies on other libraries in Ruby being written to take advantage of of this fiber stuff, right? So until that sort of happens, like I don't mm-hmm. I don't think you can well, I, I don't feel like I can use it in the real world. So I'm either waiting for somebody that's like, you know what, I'm taking a dive and I'm gonna make it work, or or for like some of these libraries to be more written and and then for me to take a look at it probably in like a year or so. I feel like that's sort of my cycle. I looked at it in like November. So I feel like this next Christmas is when I'll be looking at it again. And, you know, honestly, I think that there's a lot of things in Ruby 3 that seems really cool, whether it's the rectors or the fiber scheduler or their pattern matching and stuff. But I just haven't had a real need to say that if I upgrade to Ruby 3, I am going to be this much more efficient with how I'm developing. But then on the flip side, if I upgrade to Ruby 3, my servers are going to perform this percentage faster over Ruby 2.7. So while I see the advantages are there, I don't see the effort required to make sure that every gem that I'm using is working with Ruby 3. I don't think that that justification is quite there yet. 
I think it'll eventually get there. And any new applications I'm using now or that I'm starting off now, I am using Ruby 3.0, but I'm not quite at that point where I have to upgrade my other older applications because the future of them depends on it right now. Yeah, I think this is I think this is an example of the ground had to be, you know, uh, we had to knock some really old buildings down and clear the land away, but the building, the new hospital hasn't been made yet, right? So we can't get all excited about our new hospital because no one's built it yet. I, I feel like right now, like all the tools are now in Ruby 3 for all of this performance and things, but like people still have to kind of take take fibers and reactors and some of the other performance features that we have, right? Go implement those in a lot of the major libraries that everybody's using before people who are developing applications on a day-to-day basis are going to get to see some of that performance. I think you'll see some of it. Like, for example, if you and your own application take advantage of fibers, right? Or, or threads today, you might be able to switch to using fibers and, and get some more performance out of your app, right? But if you, for example, are just building a Rails application on top of Puma, right? You're going to have to wait until Falcon comes out, right? And gives, and and some of your libraries that, you know, take advantage of fibers, you know, come out and you update your Rails application to take advantage of these things and switch from Puma to Falcon before you're going to see that performance. I think that's, re- that's really what you're going to have to, to see. I, I think what we're seeing today is the raw performance has improved, but no one's using that today, really. I'm sorry, many of like the three of us right here, right? Typically write applications. Like we're not, yeah. uh, I don't think the three of us have talked about like, hey, you know what? I have this application where I'm, you know, manually threading all this stuff. I'm passively taking advantage of somebody else's library that handles some amount of that for me or not. Yeah, sure. You know, I've only had to do that one time and it was over five years ago where I was controlling with a Raspberry Pi, I was controlling actual motors, stepper motors, and I need them to be in sync. So I used Ruby threads for each one of the motors so that they would move synchronously with one another, or at least as, quote, synchronously as you could. I didn't have have a need for very high accuracy, which mm-hmm. probably the... Ractors and stuff could have helped with that if I did need greater precision or synchronization between the threads. But that's honestly the only time I've ever had to really worry about it. Yeah, I, I think for the use case of, of web applications, right? Threading just has never really been a thing anyway, right? Like the vast majority of the time that we're, you know, doing stuff, right, is is really waiting on user input. So for for web applications, Ruby has always been fast enough. So eking more performance out there has always been kind of eh, right? Like yeah. sure, when you have a really big web application, you start to care more. But it, you know, vast majority of people who are, for example, writing Rails apps, that it they're small apps for the vast majority for most of their life. And then as you start growing, well, that's okay. We have enough money, so we hire more people, right? Like we can we can eke out performance here, or maybe we, you know, use our asynchronous processor, Sidekick or whatever, right, to you know run stuff in a different language if it's like you know heavily computationally intensive or something. So we've always had workarounds. Yeah, and yeah. if we land or provision a four-core, eight-core server, well, Ruby's only going to take advantage of one of those cores or threads. So just spin up multiple Puma processes, you know, have several workers, and now you have a, quote, multi-core Rails application, which, you know, it's not multi-core because if that one process, you know, is very computationally heavy, it's only going to use one core, but you have Puma serving and using all the threads available on that CPU because you have X number of processes up and running. You at least have multiple lanes, right? Even if you're not yeah. effectively using all the lanes and you know, maybe not using all the bandwidth available all the time, you still have multiple lanes and that yeah, it gets it solves a lot of problems even if it's not perfect. I will say that this is one of the things that Samuel Williams digs into 
in his talk about the uh, scalable concurrency. So I believe there's around the 22 minute mark. He looks at this saying, well, why don't you just spin up more processes? And he puts a graph up where he says, yeah, this does scale to a certain extent. But if you do it the Falcon way, then you uh, you don't have the same level off that you do with Puma. Again, I recommend people look at it because I probably understood it. But he he is saying certainly in that slide that look, just just more just more Puma isn't going to give you as good a solution as what you can do with a new technology. But like I said, I feel like this is stuff that we're going to receive eventually as mortals in the Ruby ecosystem instead of diving in. I will, I would also, I've got a, got a story about uh, threads. Nearly everything I, I've written has had threading in it because I don't like to run a separate job processor. So if I'm running something like an e-commerce website that needs to go off and do something, I, I don't want to run like Redis. I don't have to. I don't want to run Sidekick. So an enormous amount of my systems use background threads just so I can return the the page and then kick off a background job and it does it essentially as a new thread this is very very bad practice but you'd be amazed what you can get away with doing without having a dedicated job process just by launching stuff in new threads hey folks if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages then you're in luck we're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after christmas 2020 without the ads Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I'm not sure that I know enough to critique it as bad practice, but it is an interesting alternative, right? Well, um, the danger is that that, um, that process gets killed. So if you're running something like Passenger or something that's kind of managing uh, managing your processes, then uh, bad things can happen. Don't assume that process is going to keep going off you serve the client's request. This is true. So uh, you've just made the trade-off that it doesn't matter. Yeah, I just don't care. Okay. <laughs> just, All right. I just I just want to make my life easier. If some customers don't get their stuff, then that's life. Okay, fair enough. You make the <laughs> and trade-off I will say, that you on, want to make. On a more serious note, would you rather have a pack of pumas on your server or one majestic soaring falcon? A falcon with razor-sharp ruby claws. A falcon that probably occasionally gets grounded. Would you do you want to do you want to phone your customer and say we've moved from the Puma to the Falcon? The Falcon is flying you get uh, Thursday night. The I'm just saying this is a wonderful conversation to have with your clients to tell them you're moving to the Falcon. <laughs> oh no, right. I think a Puma could take a Falcon. Oh no, I mean I guess if the Falcon was on the ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so oh, so that's, that's these are these are the fun bits. These are the fun bits of uh, Ruby Free. Although there is I a think, not so f- go on, Dave. Sorry, I think Passenger Five wasn't that codenamed Raptor. In which case, I'm pretty sure Raptor would take on both a Puma and a Falcon at the same time. Well, my money's on the Falcon. I don't know. Falcons are pretty cool. I'm not gonna lie. They they can they're freaking killing machines. Like just saying, it's done the Kessel Run in like nine passes. <laughs> Oh man! All right, so sweet. So Raptors and Fibers are pretty cool. They do slightly different things. Should we go hit the next big item? Yeah, because this is this that the, the Raptors and the Threads and the 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 uh, what do you put the Fibers the fun bit. There is there is some not so fun stuff, and this is the RBS, the Ruby Signature System, uh, uh, the types, the thing that we all go to Ruby to avoid typing. Is, is has reared its ugly head, and now uh, Ruby's uh, Ruby Free has massively expanded its official typing infrastructure. Yeah, I don't think any of the three of us are you know major typing fans, particularly Dave. I let me know if I'm wrong, but I think that you commented, or I think that you said that you played with them in an app a while back. Or am I crazy? I mean, types are good. I, there's it helps you write better applications but i think for the most part one thing i love about ruby is i don't have to explicitly declare my types that i'm working with you know if i just want to set a variable to an active active record relation or if i want to make it an array i can do it i don't have to worry about what type it is that does leave me open for potential bugs though you know if it's 
nil instead of an array or an active record relation, then I can be introducing bugs into my application. And in my unit testing, I never really check that this response or this thing coming in is in the proper type. So I think types can help you write more sturdy code, but I don't know if it's necessarily better code. So uh, I, I guess I was asking, so awesome. Thanks for giving your opinion, Dave. I, I was actually asking, uh, I thought that you had said before that you had used like Sorbet or something a while back. Am I wrong? No, I haven't used Sorbet. Uh, that's okay. the type library from Stripe, isn't it? it yeah. Or yeah, maybe. I don't remember if it was Stripe. I think it was Stripe. But yes, that's the type library. Okay, so crazy. So none of us here really are type. I did recently mess around with Turbo iOS and building an iOS application. So I did have to mess with types recently. It just wasn't in Ruby. And it wasn't a very fun experience. I will say that. So <laughs> I have I have explicitly dodged typing because I find the for me the value proposition isn't very good. So I, I'll be I, I'll come out publicly and sort of say it like for me in order to like move to typing right like i feel like the burden is on the people who are are valuing typing to say look the the cost right of the cost of moving to typed ruby is that i have to write more code right because uh, i'm gonna have to do either i use rbs or sorbet and you know i write all the things that you know allow me to do typing so that's extra code that I have to write. And and I feel like the value side of that is what's low. I, there's a lot of literature out there saying, hey, it's better. It reduces bugs. But I, I don't feel like those arguments are convincing at all. Like, I, I don't think that the... I, I just... I have not seen anything that, like, actually conclusively says that, like, hey, we did a bunch of data. This actually, like, reduces bugs. I've seen, like, a couple studies where they used proxies to try and figure that out. But, you know, they even, you know, uh, declared at the top of those studies that they were using proxies and that it wasn't going to be a perfect thing. And then I've seen plenty of people just saying typing is better and then just like stopping there, right? I just, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I'm not convinced by like authoritative arguments of like typing is just better. You just need to accept this argument. It's a trade-off and I don't feel like there's a lot of value in it. That being said, currently right now, if I were to pick one thing if I had to pick between RBS and Sorbet, Sorbet looks a lot easier to read, write for me. Yeah, so just as a kind of introduction, you've got, a, you've got this concept of duck typing, which confused me for, for years. People talk about duck typing. I have no idea, you know, this, this is like Falcon typing. Oh, yeah, what is, what is going on? <laughs> and this is the concept that, and especially in Ruby, if you've got an incoming object and you're doing a dot print on it, it doesn't matter what an object it, object is, as long as it's got a dot print method on it. So the incoming objects, as long as they've got the methods you need, who cares what type they are? And there's the expression: if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is a duck. That's what the duck typing means. That you know, it doesn't matter what yeah. type things are, as long as they do the same things. And this goes right back to um, Alan Kay and you know concepts behind the uh, uh, small talk. You know, the uh, if you've got the same kind of response, the same kind of messages, it doesn't really matter. You can make the system a lot looser. Now, Stripe should have should have got in touch with us on Ruby Rogues. Really, we could have saved them a lot of trouble because obviously they're processing numbers and payments and critical data. And uh, there's a feature in Ruby where you can just go two underscore i, and it just turns whatever you want into a number. You don't have to worry about what kind of type it is. And similarly, if it's a customer name or a credit something, you just, just go to underscore S. And again, it could be anything. It could be a nil, could be um, could be an entire object. Just go to underscore S. And uh, you, could, you could have saved a lot of time on developing the really quite excellent sorbet typing system. But, you know, those guys obviously do care a lot about their data, and it's very important data. You know, Stripe is like, you know, the data is literally worth maybe millions of pounds per row. So this is this is a really kind of critical stuff. So they felt probably justly that they needed a really rigorous type system to make their system bulletproof, and they developed Sorbet. So you might wonder why the 
core Ruby team didn't just say, well, we'll go walk with what Stripe has been doing for years. They haven't done that. They've developed their own system for typing. So this is a slightly interesting thing about the times in Ruby 3. They're not using Sorbet, which I think 99% of people doing types in Ruby are using. Instead, they've gone with the RBS signature, which is very, very, it does the same thing. But unlike Sorbet, you do need a completely separate file for your types. In Sorbet, you just kind of stick them in above the method uh, or near the method. In um, RBS, all of your typing information is in a separate file. Yeah, so one thing to note here is that Sorbet is going to, if it doesn't already, I, I think it might already, is going to support Ruby's uh, separate RBS files. So if, you know, you, you can at least go from RBS to Sorbet, I don't know if you can go from Sorbet to RBS as easily, though I think that you can convert. I want to I want to say that I saw an article or something that said that there was a way to convert or something like I that. I think you're right. But that that actually, what you said actually made me think of something. We should actually probably invite somebody from Sorbet to come talk about motivations for, I'm sorry, uh, ask mm -hmm. somebody from Stripe to come talk about motivations. I know that I've heard a talk from Stripe talking about why they did that, but that was a long time ago. And I wonder since we're, you know, releasing Ruby 3, like maybe we should have a, a rediscussion around that, uh, you know, have have a chat about like why the value is there from Stripe's perspective, right? Uh, maybe it's a scale issue, right? Things like that. Yeah. And, and well, I, I've, uh, I've heard that argument. The thing is that in places where I have been working with large teams, we didn't make that value choice. So I'm interested to hear, you know, somebody's perspective on why that might be. So that, that would be a thing that I was, that I would personally be interested. The last thing that I would say is I think that as we're discussing this, like we have to also, I think, keep in mind, right, that, the you know, for Luke, you brought up the concept of duct typing and things. Ruby uses a lot of, of OOP like features, right, in, in rather unique and interesting ways in some cases, right? And for example, Ruby does not, implement oh my gosh what do you call them interfaces right because we don't need to because we have duct typing in the language right which uh, effectively gives you the same thing that that an interface feature would except for the fact that like an interface also has this idea of a bit of a contract right where you're you know that the object's going to implement that thing and in ruby you, yeah you don't have that and so i think that there i think there's space and i think that the for me the uh the types thing kind of fits right here. So for me, types is kind of trying to create that sort of like contract type thing where, hey, I'm writing a method and I want to guarantee that I get these kind of types, right? Some of the some of the things that you might get from having interfacing in a different language. So anyway, I'm, I'm just kind of interested in, in how people value that stuff because that informs my decisions too. You know, because I my perspectives change over time as I hear other people express why they valued something. Yeah. And I will say that as a Stripe customer, I'm really glad that Stripe is using types, you know, just for that assurance that what we are giving it is what it is expecting. I think that's you know really good from a personal perspective as I'm developing. If I'm abstracting code into its own class, just into plain old Ruby objects, then I'm less worried about typing. One, because I keep my classes very simple. I have one entry point. I have them doing just one small function. They're not overwhelmed with a whole bunch of functionality. But then also, I'm giving things proper naming. So naming my methods or parameters using keyword parameters makes it a lot easier when I'm consuming that class that I know that, okay, this user object is expecting a actual user, not an array of users or anything like that. So I think that's kind of what has kept uh, type checking at bay for me is just good practices and proper naming of things. But I can see where something like Stripe, where you have millions of dollars per second on the line that just having quality code isn't good enough. You have to have those checks and balances in place. 
Yeah, and just quickly on the more on the uh, the typing, adding the types in don't doesn't actually do anything. So even if you create all your RBS files, this this is not going to throw type errors. You do have to check the types in a separate in a separate process. So you could use a gem called Steep. Uh, so even if you declare types, the Ruby code will still run as it used to. It's not going to kind of blow up and say, help, it's not a string. You 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 have to incorporate that as part of your test framework or build process. Yep. Sweet. So Any, go ahead. one last question. Does type checking in Ruby, and I guess especially Ruby 3.0, does that get us closer to compiled binaries? I... My suspicion, my suspicion is that the longer term plan is to, to leverage typing information to hugely speed up Ruby. So that if the, the, the VM, or as you said, the compiler knows the type, it can use this information to make a much more efficient binary. I've been watching, I'm going to pick it at the end, actually, an amazing series on YouTube called Creel which looks at the actual assembly language output of compilers and speed differences. And you can write code that's 30 to 40 times faster than C++ uh, if you le correctly leverage processor instructions. I'll say that again, 30 to 40 times faster than a C++ program depending on the way your compiler compiles it. So my, my suspicion is that by introducing types, there'll be massive efficiency payoff later, but I don't know for sure. I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I mean, we already have the ability to create binaries, but yeah, I mean, having this information right kind of changes the game a little bit, right? I mean, that's been discussed a few times in some of the performance talks, right, that people have given, is that one of the difficulties in Ruby is you just don't know what something is, right? And so so having types available, if if you could basically say, all right, I have types on this thing, therefore my, you know, program out could, could be different. Like I can totally imagine a world, right? Where maybe you're not, maybe the value is, you know, not it's suspect, right? Like maybe the value is suspect for those of us who are writing Rails apps and things like that. But for the people who are using Ruby to create compiled binaries, maybe the value proposition is a lot higher. Sweet. Anything more on types? Oh, it's enough types one day, my word. We should probably just run through the rest of it. One line pattern matching. Yeah, I think. Didn't we uh, discuss that? Because doesn't it come? No, this is slightly different. Okay, what's the distinction? So the, what you can do in Ruby 3, you can't do in Ruby 2, is you can put A equals, instead of A equals zero, you can go zero rocket, where rocket is an equal sign followed and a greater than sign, O rocket A. So you can put stuff the wrong way around. You can do left to right oh, assignment yes, yes. Ruby free. Yeah, yeah, right-hand assignment. Okay, so isn't that okay? I thought we were talking about pattern matching. Is that the same? Is that the same feature? This is so that, that is effectively one line pattern matching. So in Ruby two, they, they slightly change the syntax uh, so that you can write, for example, uh, you suppose you're looking at a series of objects. You can say, look at everything before this array if i put two strings in an row so say one two a b three four five in ruby three you can say get me those first two strings in a in a row and put everything before it and everything after it in a separate array and you can do that in one line by going the star pre and the string a string b and star post why you would want to do this is slightly beyond me because so, I'm gonna let's say if example. you let's say if you have an array that in this array there's two items you have a string and then an integer and mm -hmm. sometimes this array might be an integer and another integer yep. so you can do a case statement mm -hmm. with that array and then kind of do what you're saying where in an integer and an integer hash rocket A or to the rocket A, then you do this scenario. Otherwise, if it is in a string in an integer format, then you do yep. something else. 
So I think that would be a use case for it. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're a Neolithic programmer like me, then you 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 would look at it and go, well, why not just use an if statement? But if you want to clean up your code, I can see this gives you a lot more um, powerful tooling to make your code potentially a lot more readable. Yeah, I feel like, so I found an article that kind of has some reasonably good examples or whatever. I was I was thinking that this was available in Ruby 2.7, but maybe it's not. But basically, the I think it, the good examples that it's giving here are that you can you can compare a hash on the left. Okay, so so in Ruby, it would look like you have a hash on the left, hash on the right. Hash on the left has your variable names with maybe like a value that you want to compare with the right. So you uh, maybe, you know, have an array of A, B, and like one of the examples in here, you have an array with A, B, and 42. And then you have some values on the right, you know, that you want to assign to A and B. And the last value needs to be 42. Otherwise, it won't assign it. I, I don't know. Yeah, th this is one that I also uh, don't have good cases for that I would use it yet. But I'm imagining, just like some of the features in 2.7, I think that a lot of these features that are coming are sort of like, either right now I'm convinced that there's going to be a whole bunch of terrible code written that's going to come through code review. And I'm going to have to be like, I can't read this. Like, we should we should write this a different way. Or that slowly the way that we write Ruby is going to change because we're going to, there's going to be some value here that I just don't see on the surface. Plus, I'm not sure, you know, is it going to be quicker? You know, is there an actual performance payoff to using these features? I suspect there may be because it's more structured. So there should be more opportunity for the VM to optimize because your intent is more compact rather than spread across several statements. But I've not seen any figures on that yet. I mean, I'm I one of the things that I like try to tell people a lot, a lot of times is like I don't I'm a personal believer that you come to Ruby because you're trying to optimize your developer throughput over over your your program throughput, right? That you value that one more more. So for me like all of these trade-offs, it's okay to improve like I'm very happy that we're improving the performance of Ruby, but I feel like it shouldn't come at the trade-off of readability and things like that, right? Things that improve your developer throughput. And that's because typically we're here because we like developer happiness, because we like developer throughput, things like that, and we value those higher. And so if you trade those things away, all of a sudden Ruby loses its distinctiveness from other languages and then there's no reason to use Ruby. So, Yeah, I agree with that sentiment, John. And for the most part, I found that Ruby is slow but it's not slow for the reasons why I say it's slow. It's slow in comparison to a compiled application. You know, hands down, you know, you can't get around that. However, from the end user perspective and loading up a application, Ruby's not really that slow. It handles and does things extremely quickly. The reason why Ruby might become slow, why a page might take two minutes to load is because I've made it slow. The decisions I've made has made it slow, whether it is n plus one queries or not using proper indexes on my database or doing other improper kind of patterns. That's made Ruby slow, and it would make any kind of language slow. So I think that having cleaner code, like you were saying with the pull request and some of the patterns that we might start to see emerging more and more often as we adopt Ruby 3.0, we will start writing nicer looking maintainable code, which we will then be able to see some of these performance issues just by reviewing the code before it ever hits a point where now we're in production and this page is taking 30 seconds to load. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with you, Dave. If it, it's as soon as you can start delivering a better experience uh, using your application, that's that's when you, that's when everyone gets interested. Totally agreed. So, do we want to go on, or, or do we have any more on this, or do we want to roll on to new features or other features? That's just, that's the kind of the meat of what I got. I'm sure I missed stuff out. 
the rest of it is kind of small things. The endless mm. method of definitions. The never most, again, a thing most that totally, feature to come. It, it completely confused me. I thought endless method definitions was referring to Sandy Metz's style of object-oriented programming. Don't tell her I said that. The <laughs> Oh, love, love Sandy Metz. If I, if only, if only I could code properly. Um, but endless method definitions does not refer to colleagues who keep running, writing tiny, tiny methods and putting them everywhere. It means you don't have to write the keyword "end." The three letters "end" are no longer needed to define a method. What do you do instead, John? Oh, I was definitely on something else. I mean, you you gave me the syntax here. Is this guess what did, the teacher's I did. thinking? I did. I set you up. I set you up to win. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, I mean, you just assign the method definition to the left, which is really weird looking for Ruby, for Ruby. But it looks very JavaScripty, actually, to be honest. <laughs> That's what I was kind of thinking when I saw it. Well, you know, something like that I could get down with because how many times have you created a single line method that it never, ever is ever going to be more than a single line? And you're taking up three lines with it. There's no need for that. With this, you can just do one line and it will pass whatever kind of RuboCop or styling guideline that you have. I, Instead I, of using I, semicolons. I used it. So I looked at it, I hated it, and then I used it and I loved it. I think I think RuboCop's gonna like <laughs> rail at you for using this at all. Is actually what it's gonna be. <laughs> RuboCop has been defunded. Over here, there is no RuboCop on my <laughs> on my code base. Ouch! Oh, I know. so I was gonna refer. I was gonna say the Sandy Metz thing. We should roll back to that real quick because I think no. Let's let's, that, let's right? pretend I never said it. No, no, no. I think she's addressed that before, right? Like, if you have a code base where you have endless method definitions because you're just you're trying to follow the quote unquote Sandy Metz style, right? Like she's addressed it before. Like you shouldn't take any style to an extreme. If that's your problem, you should do something else. <laughs> oh, you no. probably have classes or something you need to extract at that point. So so I've I've used endless method definitions. And by that I don't mean lots of tiny method definitions. <laughs> I mean the new Ruby free right. feature in yeah. a bit of complex dispatch logic which I've been developing for a client where they're still not sure how they want the logic to work. So I've got a series of complex rules uh, that depend on manufacturing processes. And one thing I like to do to make this simple is I like to make my checks more readable. So for example, I've got something called has underscore big underscore lid. So then I can write stuff like if has big lid and you know, weight above critical, then this. And then your has big lid is just a very simple method. And you didn't got kind of maybe 10, 15 of those uh, all on kind of one-line method definitions below your main business logic method. And this really, really makes your code a lot more readable because this is the kind of job where I'm kind of maybe doing it once a week when it blows up. Uh, so I have to come back to it. Uh, and completely change gears. And this has hugely sped up the time it takes for me to, sorry, hugely sped up the speed of which I can read my own code. That's fair. That's fair. So I'm very excited about the next feature, which is, I think, yeah, the just, most just important we, feature in Ruby 3. Just before we introduce the next feature, why don't they just copy paste the entire of active support into Ruby? I don't know, but uh, I'm very excited that hash accept is now in Ruby natively. Because I use that all the time. Yeah, when I started having to write systems in Ruby that weren't Rails systems, then I would I would look at you know Rails code and go, why isn't this working? Well, it's because that's that's active support. It's not a Ruby feature, it's an active support feature. Mm -hmm. So maybe I should start a petition to copy paste the whole of active support into Ruby. Yep, I'm always adding like deep clone and deep compact and deep uh, symbolized keys and symbolized like keys. Oh yes, every um, time. So I mean, yeah, I I I'd use a lot of things. There's actually even like a couple that aren't even in active support anymore that like I just you know put in my app. So very glad that one's in there. All right. So uh, just wrapping wrapping up, you can now do hash to accept. That's a native Ruby Ruby free, and the last 
couple of things is you can use measure and measure off uh, to very quickly check execution time to new Ruby feature. Uh, before I would do time.now and then check, you know, a minus time.now. And that's how I do a quick speed comparison. Now there's like a really nice way to measure your execution time in IRB. And more Did generally... Hmm? Didn't use benchmark? Don't like it. Can't tell you why. I just don't. That's fair. The, it has an awkward API. Never, never, never enjoyed it. It gives me too many numbers and I get confused. The, the last thing is the JIT. The JIT has, uh, which is the just-in-time compiler, which we interviewed in a previous episode. We talked to um, the developer of the JIT. The JIT has undergone massive speed increases in Ruby 3. You were probably not using the JIT yet, but a really quite an enormous amount of code has gone into the core Ruby language and Ruby 3 on the JIT. And I'm, I would be enormously surprised if we didn't see significant JIT usage in the next year or two from a Rails perspective, because the, the promise of performance is uh, really, really quite uh, interesting from the JIT. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Sweet. Should we uh, roll into picks? Yep. I think we should. Two picks. Luke, you want to kick us off? I do. I have loads of picks this week. My first pick is uh, one I've kind of talked about already, is a YouTube channel called What the Creel. This is a presumably Australian guy who goes into really low-level stuff with compilers and assembly language. Now, you might think, oh, this isn't really the kind of thing I'd be interested in as a Ruby or Rails developer. You will be interested in this. My word, I was on the edge of my seat during this stuff. Really, really interesting dive into what's going on underneath the hood when your programs are running. The next pick is a pick about Intel and their changing fortunes just to give you an idea what it's about it's called intel how intel became a laughing stock uh, again i don't know if intel really is a laughing stock but a uh, very very entertaining video on how the market's changing and why stuff like the amd ryzen process seem to be taking over the world at the moment and my final pick is a blog post by uh, peter jatkowski which is a deep dive into threads in ruby all the things you wanted to know about threads but were afraid to ask guy in that blog post cool awesome. and john do you have any so picks? yeah i do have i have a double pick which is kind of like one pick so i've been working for the past three weeks on well obviously this is not my day job but you know at, at night i've been working for the past three weeks on trying to get get an application to talk to quickbooks and it's been it's been fun. Let's put it that way. QuickBooks is not awesome, but I encountered a couple gems. Well, one specifically, I use the QBO API gem, but they link off to the QuickBooks Ruby gem if you like use their XML API or whatever. But this gem literally saved my life for. I mean, it doesn't do everything right. Like I still have to write something to uh, manage, you know. Uh, refreshing my API token like once an hour, <laughs> but but otherwise, you know, it's 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 really good. It handles a lot of the things. Um, they even had the hack that I needed to use, though they didn't label it as such. So maybe that's a pull request that I can add or something. But they had the hack that I needed to to use to refresh the API token. It did a lot of heavy lifting for me, which is super helpful. The only issue is, you know, just kind of getting two different things to talk to one another. So. Yep. 
It's been a lot of fun. Also of note, all I wanted to do was create an invoice in QuickBooks, but apparently I have to have an, every other possible kind of objects that QuickBooks has in order just to create an invoice. So it just, yep, it's just what it is. So yeah, that's been fun. That gem, totally super helpful. Awesome. And now I'll jump in with a couple of picks. My first pick is Hotwire. It is the umbrella library, which includes Turbo and Stimulus. And I've been messing around a lot with Hotwire and new Rails applications and Webpacker and Best Routes Forward. And I think that we are not only seeing a lot of changes in Ruby, but I think we're going to be seeing a lot of changes in Rails in the coming uh, year or two. And I think it's all for the better. So I've been trying to create new projects with Hotwire instead of going the Webpacker route. And it's been interesting, to say the least, and just trying to find workarounds for certain things that worked before, doesn't work now. But overall, I'm really happy with it and excited to see where it's going. And the other pick I have is, let's see, it's a DeWalt angle grinder. So I've been building a shed lately. And so far, I've moved over 10,000 pounds of concrete. And that was a huge task to lay the foundation. But one of the things with that is we had some rebar that I needed to cut to fit the area that I was laying the concrete. And doing that manually or with a hacksaw would have just been super annoying. But I was able to just cut, cut through it like butter with the angle grinder. But it's also one of the scariest tools that I have. Because if that disc were to shatter, you're basically sending very hot shrapnel everywhere. So be careful. Well, yep. I think that's it for this episode. That's a, that's a very different kind of a constructor method you've got there, Dave. <laughs> I was going to make a comment on that too, but... <laughs> yeah. So cool. I, I like my power tools. Power tools are definitely fun. So Yeah. I put I put uh, the angle grinder in the same class as like my drum. I'll write those freeform things that are just harder to control and have. Yeah, <sighs> good deal. Yep. All right. Well, it was good talking to y'all, and we will talk later. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.